0: This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters, my men and my women. And it's time put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. Hip hop.
1: The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs. Who inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt abstract and linear sober and fucked up and when we decode that torrent of words by which i mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open we can understand their world better and ours too it's the same world this is rhymes and reasons okay my name is danielle belton and i'm associate editor at the Root. I'm also the creator of a blog called The Black Snob that I started like back in 2007 that I don't update anymore, but it still exists. I still post on it every now and then. Well, the the first song uh, I have here is Buffalo Stance by Nina Cherry. Well, for me, like I was a kid when Buffalo Stance came out and like my initial response as a child was like, "One, Wow. Like, here's a black girl that looks kind of like me and my sisters who is on television. She's on BET rapping about stuff. I have no idea what she's talking about. I have no idea whatsoever. Is this mature, like beyond my years. But as a kid, I knew I liked it. Like I'd listened to some hip hop up to that point, but my parents hated rap music. So I decided I also hated it because I was a small child. and I I was very agreeable and impressionable in that way with my parents. But uh, when Buffalo Stats came out, there was like, there was no denying that I liked rap music. And I was just gonna have to accept that maybe my parents were wrong about this whole hip hop thing. Like maybe they just didn't get it. Maybe as, you know, Will Smith had said, parents, you know, just didn't understand. And you know, that was just. curly hair and see my mother always made me wear my hair straight and I wanted to wear my hair curly I was so attracted to the fact that she wore her hair out and curly because most of the black girls I knew at the time their parents either straightened their hair with a hot comb or with a permanent uh, solution with a perm and my mom pressed my hair straight I got burned with a hot comb many a times to get the the desired look and I really wanted to wear my hair curly really really badly to see what it looked like because I was just so attracted I just had never seen it it was her whole overall look, it was whole, her whole character, her confidence, her attitude, and that she just seemed so self-assured and put together. and she was, you know, she was black, and she had this beautiful curly hair, and I was just like, I was just drawn to her.. I know my- Once upon a time, there was this period called the 80s where it was still really rare to see black people on television. It was an exciting thing to see a black sitcom because it was just such a rare, rare sight. I mean, that's why the Cosby Show was such a big deal. That's why Different World was later such a big deal because it was just so rare to see anyone that looked like me or look like my family on television so often anytime there was an interesting looking black person on tv I would get excited me and my sisters would all get excited I can remember watching music videos with them and we would watch a video like for instance uh Sheila E.'s a glamorous life and we would all fight over who was actually Sheila E in the video like oh that's me that's me I'm her I'm her you know we would do that all the time when we saw something that just reminded us of us and represented us because I can remember when I was really, really young, I loved to color. I loved to color. I had all these color books because my older sister hated coloring, so I inherited all of them. And they were Barbie coloring books because I love Barbie. And Barbie on the cover of the coloring books was white. And so I used to color all the Barbies white. And my father one day came up to me and said, Danielle, you know, I'd like to color with you. Can I color with you? And I was like, sure. That sounds great. I was like all oh, excited. I'm going to color with Daddy. It's going to be awesome. And so I gave him a Barbie and I had my Barbie and I colored mine white, like always. And he colored his brown with black hair. And he says, look at her. Don't you think she's pretty? And I was like, mind blown. Like, that was my first, like, mind, like, I, like mind literally exploded. Like, there's a little tiny, like, mushroom cloud, like, appeared over my head. And I was like, oh, snap. You can just do whatever you
0: want with these things?
1: Like, I thought it was just the rule that you had to make them all look the same way with the color. I didn't know I could just make her look like me. And then from then on, all I wanted to draw in color were black people. So it's important for young black kids to be able to see representations of themselves because otherwise you would have
0: thinking something's wrong with you.
1: The BET and MTV, to a lesser extent, were huge in that way for me in the 80s and 90s, where I could finally see Black people on a regular basis on television, like, yeah, with music and yeah, I was performing, but it was just still so rare to see anyone who looked like me in any type of positive light. Like, that was just exciting. And it just had a, a deeply profound effect on, like, how I wanted to dress, my confidence, how I wanted to talk like how I felt about like, creating and crafting my own identity. I had these other people kind of look to get an idea of what blackness could be outside of just my family. Under, down, yeah, you know, it. on, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, once I started listening to that and I realized that girls could rap too, that was really attractive. Like anytime there was a girl rapper on TV, I was immediately captivated For it. So Salt-N-Pepa, Goodness, J.J. Fad, like Supersonic, like blew my mind like as a little kid. Oaktown357, like I purposely picked all-girl rappers because I was like, I, w- I wanna pick all-girl rappers and you know, just to make a point about how like huge that was for me as a kid to see somebody who looked like me. And since this is the 80s and 90s, there wasn't a need to be overtly sexual. You could be kind of sexy, but you still just could be yourself. So there was this like this blend of like a hip hop kind of swag, like baggy pants style, with like a little bit of a some feminine touches to it, and that was really attractive to me. Like I wanted, I wanted to be MC Light, I wanted to be those women, I wanted to be Queen Latifah. They just looked so cool to me, and they, they you know, what they had to say seemed so relevant, even though I could relate to none of it as a kid from the suburbs. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. More specifically, I grew up in St. Louis County, which is you know, a suburban area full of all these little tiny municipalities. There's just a ton of them. And I grew up in, a, in one of them in North County called Florissant. It's boring in uh, Florissant. There's a lot of grass and trees, and if you throw a rock in any direction, you will hit a church of any denomination. There's just people really like going to church in Florissant, so they just built a ton of them so everyone could have every church of their possible variety and desire. Available to them. Growing up, I wanted to live in the city very badly. The suburbs just seem—it's great if you're raising a family, but if you want to like go out and have adventures and experience life, like the suburbs is—that's just—it's just just not it. You know, it's great to to relax and you get all the peace and quiet in the world. But I feel like I had enough peace and quiet for my entire childhood that I was (laughs) like—I immediately once I became an adult, like wanted to live in the city of every town I moved to as a, a newspaper reporter. Even if it was a crappy city, I would go ahead and move to the downtown area just because I, I wanted to be, have a, live an urban life. No, no, no. My mom is from Newport, Arkansas, and my dad's from Gainesville, Texas. Both of them came up from the Deep South because, well, the South where they were growing up was heavily segregated, and there were just limited opportunities for African-Americans. So they were like, bump this, (laughs) we're moving on up to the north and see how things are gonna work there. And uh, my mom was a school teacher. My dad is an architectural engineer and he went on to work in the aerospace industry for McDonnell Douglas and he met my mom. They got married, had some kids, it was nice. They didn't get very far. My uncles like to tease my mom all the time that she was trying to make it to Chicago, but her car broke down. And she ended up in St. Louis. For my dad, it was purely professional. McDonnell Douglas was there. He was an engineer. He's like, I'm going to go make this money. Uh, My mother, it was like, she's the oldest of nine children. She didn't want to be too far from her mom, but she wanted to be far enough where her mom couldn't tell her what to do anymore, so... Yeah, I mean, St. Louis has a very southern feel to it. It's a very deeply segregated city. It can be a fun city, and it has some aspects of it that are very interesting culturally. A lot of uh, interesting history with music and literature, although I'd argue that most of the musical history that I find to be cool is more related to East St. Louis than St. Louis. You know, you got Miles Davis, you got Ike Turner. They both came out of East St. Louis, not St. Louis. Although St. Louis is happy to claim them whenever they can. Uh, And of course you have Chuck Berry. He's awesome. They did warm up to certain types of rappers. Like I remember this one particular rapper. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is MC Hammer. Like he like came out in the 90s. And I don't know, he was briefly a really, 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 really big deal. And, like, <laughs> so, like, Hammer came out with, like, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. It was his second album. So he comes out with Can't Touch This. And my parents already liked Rick James' Super Freak. Like, they already thought Rick James was incredible. So it's like, oh, this guy just ripped off Super Freak. But this is actually a really hot song. Like so, they liked that he danced. And he had, like, a cool look. You know, he wasn't just wearing just regular street clothes. He had on these harem genie pants and these, like, little tiny bedazzled jackets. And like, he was getting down and funky with it and challenging Michael Jackson to dance-offs and dance duels. And so that was one rapper that both my parents liked. But my dad also had an affinity for Heavy D. And I love Heavy D. And Heavy D won my dad over by the fact that he was such a proficient dancer. My dad's a big guy. And so we would watch it like the Soul Train Awards and Heavy D would come out, like be out there busting some moves. My dad's like, look at that big boy go! Like, he was so proud. It was like, you know, he was empowered by a fellow big man who also liked to get out there and shake it. So my dad liked Heavy D a lot. And I could play Heavy D at the house. Like Heavy D famously had the song Don't Curse. So I could play Heavy D around my parents and they didn't care. No, I love Don't Curse because I was not actually allowed to curse as a child. Neither myself nor my sisters nor my mom, none of us cursed at all. My mom still doesn't curse. Me and my sisters eventually like grew into cursing. But for a very long time, nobody, nobody cursed. So Don't Curse, like, met a lot because it's like, see, see, there's nothing wrong with us being, people keep saying I'm lame, but this Heavy D song says I'm not. And Heavy D is cool. So therefore all you people who think it's lame without a Don't Curse. You're, you're the one who problem. Because me and Heavy D are in agreement about this. things. And yo, I almost forgot. The curse is a plot, but it's getting
0: kind of hot. So I'ma let profanity retire. Hey, where the <laughs> first come to work, I'll cut you out like with your briar. So grand pool will kick up first. But do your man a favor and don't curse.
1: Oh, it was like, what's this newfangled music that doesn't involve singing? I don't like it. It's not interesting to me. And they're just ripping off old James Brown songs. So my parents were just being old fuddy-duddies about it. They were having the same response that you know, maybe their parents had when rock and roll came out, basically. like my, my parents, especially my mom, eventually lightened up, mostly because my parents loved music. Uh, my, one of my mom's favorite recording artists is Isaac Hayes. You know, and he would come on the stage like in chains and like record twenty minute songs. So it's like she wasn't so prudish that she didn't get like what was going on here. Like she liked Denise LaSalle and Millie Jackson, all this really great raunchy blues music. So uh, there was a rule that my mom had in the house that we could read any books that we wanted and listen to whatever music we wanted, even if she didn't like it. So she was very supportive of our love of hip hop, even if she didn't necessarily get it all the time.
0: Some with these uh-huh, uh-huh. the product, sometimes you for your cream and your Rich.
1: The next song I have here is a one that also kind of blew my mind is Little Kim's No Time. I believe I was in high school at the time and I saw it again on BEC. I believe I was watching BEC when the video first came on. At the time, like this is gonna be like a recurring trend in every story that I tell about each of these songs. I initially didn't like Bad Boy Records that much. I had liked Craig Mack and I liked Flavor in the Ear but I had for some reason decided to side with the Tupac side of the East Coast, West Coast divide. I decided I was into West Coast hip-hop more than I was into East Coast hip-hop, so I was quite dismissive of Biggie and Junior Mafia when they first came out. I was like, well, who cares about this stuff? All they do is rap about their labels and all about their clothes. Who cares about their clothes? I don't care about how much money you have, you pop crystal bottles. That's not my life. That doesn't relate to me. I'm gonna go listen to some more Tupac. So at first, I was really, really dismissive, but it's like, again, it's a female rapper. It's a a black woman rapping. Like, I can't ignore that. She still commanded my attention. Like, she grabbed me by the back of my neck. Like, no, you're going to look at me and acknowledge me. I don't, I make you uncomfortable. I'm overly sexual and most of the female rappers you like were not sexual in this particular way. But this is just a new thing. This is a new thing that I'm doing and that I want respect for. And so it was just so compelling and her wordplay was so good. Like, she was so good in her performative style with the lyrics and she was just so strong that she couldn't be denied. And she had like, just super, Super, super short hair and she again was rocking with like incredible confidence you know the video was and cool like puffy's in it but you can ignore puffy but she was just pretend like yeah he's not there with his insists <gasps> on being on every track like i think puffy was why i really didn't like bad boy initially i think i just wasn't into puffy for some reason he just really irked me that he did the least amount of work but got all this credit Cause he put the cool on the song, whatever it's that. Like, he pushed the button. I don't know. He said, "Take that, take that, bad boy, come out to play, bad boy, play." The song. I mean, she was raunchy. She was raunchy and in your face with it. I mean, she was spread eagle on the cover of the album, which, again, like, at first was really off putting for me. Like, I, at the time, was a super, super girly girl. I wore a wicker, like, one of those hats, like, made out of straw with a flower in the middle because I thought I was Blossom and the Sister, Sister Twins. Like, those were my fashion icons at the time. So I was very virginal and pure-looking. So, like, Lil' Kim was like, what is this? I was, like, so, like, shocked and like scandalized by it, but at the same time intrigued. I wanted to hear what she had to say. And she was just so clever. Like it was just so denied that, I mean, the way that she kind of like presented things, like the whole package was really, really just captivating. Like it just commanded attention. And she really uh, set the stage for better or for worse for future female rappers where he's like, it wasn't just good enough to have good wordplay or be able to hang with the guys, you know, musically. Like, you needed to also be, like, your own video hoe. Lil' Kim didn't need to put girls in the video, she was the hot girl. And it's a tradition that carries on, like, through today. Every female rapper that comes out now, like, she has to be her own hot video girl. She doesn't, along with, like, being able to rap. You gotta be both, like, a king model type body and be able to spit bars. Well, Nina Cherry, you know, was definitely more empowering for me as a young girl. Like, Little Kim was really, really intimidating because her sexuality was so aggressive. But at the same time, I felt like it wasn't a bad thing, like, necessarily. I felt like people turned it into a bad thing. And she sometimes became synonymous with her sexuality. Like, I felt like she had a hard time separating the persona that she had to play from who, you know, she actually is on the inside. So I feel like that was sometimes torturous for her and was reflected in her appearance and in her behavior, and so that was kind of kind of sad for me. Like to watch her go through like the different phases with the plastic surgery and things like that. that was kind of tough. I liked how little Kim looked when she first came out. I thought she was beautiful, and so I didn't really understand why she felt the need to change so much about herself because I didn't think anything was wrong with her. Uh, high school I went to an integrated high school so it was mostly white it was at the time it was only maybe a quarter black like now I think it's like half and half but when I was there it was only maybe 25% black and it was interesting because there was enough black kids where I didn't feel like I was isolated or ostracized in any kind of way but it was clearly that it was a mostly white school like the most of the student government and things like that was white and, The cheerleading squad was all white. I think there was only like one black cheerleader, this chick that I also went to elementary school with. And uh, the drill team on the other hand, which I was on was all black. It was like a bunch of black girls twirling flags and doing chants, (laughs) which was nice. I did not have the best high school experience. I actually kind of hated high school. I was a nerd. I got picked on a whole lot. I was a weirdo. Again, I dressed like Blossom. I did not curse. <laughs> I didn't do anything cool because my parents kept me on lockdown I couldn't go anywhere or do anything fun so I was considered lame for most of the time I was in high school uh-huh.
0: That drama I don't need to give
1: you life. I was taught don't give energy to those you don't like middle school was probably more jarring because I started out at a mostly black middle school and my parents moved when I was in the seventh grade to the white end of the school district and I went to an almost all-white junior high and that was probably tougher than the high school was like that I was you know often one of like maybe two or three black kids in the class if that it was very isolating I pretty much ate lunch by myself You know, I didn't really have any friends. I had one other friend, this kid named Brandon, who used to carry, like, this giant footlocker bag. Like, everyone else had a booklet bag. He had, like, a giant, practically, like, a suitcase that he carried around school. This was, like, pre-Columbine. People assumed he was, like, the future guy that was, like, going to blow up the school. But he really wasn't that type. He was just, like, a goofy kid who liked dragons and (laughs) drawing fantasy stuff. Like he was a really sweet kid so he was my only friend. We were each other's only friends and we just like big dorks who just sat around just talked about how much the school sucked all the time. Oh yeah, I was always writing. I used to keep all these spiral notebooks and I would like fill with song lyrics and poetry and short stories that I wrote. I wrote my first novel at 13 in a series of spiral notebooks in longhand curses. It was 178 pages long. The book is terrible, though. Like, nobody should ever read it. Yeah, it's in my parents' house. It's in the basement somewhere. Oh, like, I continue to write, like, little novels throughout the, my whole high school experience. Because, like, school was really boring for me. Like, I was a good student, and I got really good grades without having to do much. So, because I read so much. I could sit in social studies class, and I would just write my novel. Like, and a teacher would think, oh, my goodness, she takes such meticulous notes. Like, I'm sitting there just writing a novel the whole time. not paying any attention whatsoever. (laughs) I'm writing about teenagers in college, like, doing exciting things. Or, like, adults. I wrote about adults a lot because I wanted to be an adult. I was so sick of being a child at the time. I don't know why. Like, now I look back, I'm like, I don't know why I want to be grown so bad. This shit sucks. But (laughs) as a small child, like, being an adult awesome. You do whatever you want to do. You go live in the city and you go have adventures which is what I wanted very, very badly. So most of my novels reflected that. And I would share them with my friends and they would read them. I also used to draw a comic strip based on my high school that I used to share with my friends all the time and pass around. So I would work on that in class. So school for me, like I was there, but I wasn't really actually, my my body was physically in class. All my teachers agreed that I was well-behaved. I got mostly A's and B's. With minimal effort, I was really just working on novels and poetry the whole time. I was not paying attention. I'm sorry, all my teachers, if for some weird reason you're watching this, I, you didn't teach me anything. <laughs> like, I was not. I, Danielle was not there.
0: School spirit, motherfucker. Can you speak? Alpha step, omega step.
1: Oh, like when I got to college, college was different. Like I fit in more in college. Like I made more sense. Like I, how I'd always thought that I would make more sense as an adult than I did as a child. Like as a child, like I was a little old person. Like I was antiquated in my ways. And I was like, teachers kept saying, oh, you're so mature for your age. Whatever that meant. You know, like I was still like thought like a kid, but I was well behaved. So it's like when I got to college, things just were easier like people were much more accepting about my personality and all of its quirks people did not mind that I was a little old person that was saving up her money so I would have furniture in my apartment when I moved out of my parents house and then I was yeah I still didn't curse until I went to the journalism program and that that fixed that graduated at the top of
0: class <laughs> I went to he was a motherfucking waiter out of a step oh the step I went to
1: Southern Illinois University, at Edwardsville. It's a college campus, the sister campus to the, the larger university in Carbondale. It's right outside of St. Louis in Illinois. Yes, I studied journalism in college and I, I minored in English. College was, again, like I was kind of in a rush to be an adult. So I like blew through college in three years. I really didn't party that much. I was, again, kind of lame, but everyone kind of accepted my lameness. Like, everyone else was like, we're going to East St. Louis to go to the club. And I am like, okay, I'll stay home and watch your baby, you know, <laughs> and do my homework dutifully. They would have the most inane arguments with me where they were like, try to figure out how to corrupt me. And I was just incorruptible. Like, it just couldn't happen. I remember the first my first semester in college in the dorm room. And I had, like, an 8 a.m. class. And some of my classmates are up playing spades. And I'm in my pajamas getting ready to go to bed. And they're like, it was, like, 10 o'clock. They're like, Belton, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's 10 o'clock. I got an 8 a.m. class. And like, you're seriously going to bed? I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be tired. Do, 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 And it's like, went back to my dorm room. And they're like, oh my God, she actually went back there and went to sleep after we made fun of her. It didn't affect her at all. And enough incidences like this, it became, it got to the point where even when I wanted to break out and do something crazy, my friends would stop me. They'd go, like, no, Danielle. You're the one that's gonna actually graduate and do something with your life. You don't want to go to the club and get shot at with us. You stay at home with My friends became very, very protective of me and my innocence after a while. What was different was, I thought that when you became an adult, something actually clicked in your brain And you magically transform into a responsible, reasonable person. And it didn't occur to me that the same person that I was at 10 years old would be the same person I was at 16 would also be the same person at 37. Like, it just didn't. I'm still me. You're still who you are on the inside. And it like hit me in my 20s. Like, oh, crap. My parents are basically still mentally they still feel the same way they did when they were like 18, 19, 20. They didn't know what they were doing. Oh my god, like it was horrifying when I realized that they just were all just kind of winging it. And that all adults were just kind of winging it that we're all still basically fundamentally who we were when we were younger, our just our bodies just insisted on changing.
0: Please don't mess with me. I'll spit you out like you were Sunny D. Did you really think you could be me, baby? Listen, this next part is key. You play a lot of Nintendo, smoke endo, as far well as mango, one in the crescendo, throw Super Mario and Atari out the window. Now, we have something in common. You're lactose intolerant. I'm host intolerant. Stop talking about and crackos, you're in college. Apologies accepted. I might lift lyrical holes in your mind. You're full later with cable of Hot 97 or Taco Bell in a plan You want to play fine, play dough, roll you through a machine until you come out in little strings. I'm obscene. I really could eat like five Krispy creams, like when they're hot, like all my tracks are hot.
1: No, actually, the Princess Superstar song, I I heard when I actually uh, started work in California. This next song is Princess Superstars. Oh, you get mad at Napster. <laughs> now, I loved this song because this was like after I, you know, I've become an adult and was living my very adult life in Bakersfield, California. Bakersfield was a transformative period for me because um, after when I was in my early 20s, I got married. The marriage was horrible, it fell apart after a year. And I went to a deep depression, the first time I'd ever been severely depressed. Like during in the middle of that depression, while getting over my divorce, I moved to Bakersfield and started a new life as a newspaper reporter there. And I stayed there for five years. And throughout the time that I was there, like I had a great time. It was an amazing job. People like rag on Bakersfield for being like a crappy place. And it is, you know, a little crappy. But (laughs) I had a wonderful time there and really appreciated the city and its people. But it was also one of the worst times in my life because I was severely depressed off and on. My moods fluctuated wildly between mania and depression. And I had been misdiagnosed, like people, my doctors thought I had just had depression when in actuality I was bipolar and I was struggling with bipolar disorder. And so everything that happened to me during this time period really affected me deeply from like the types of music that I discovered to the people that I met, it's all just really, really vivid. And so in the case of Princess Superstar, I was searching for a female rapper. Like female rappers had waned. This is like the early 2000s. I was in um, Bakersfield from 2002 to 2007. So there just was a drought. And so I went outside the normal, like watching music videos and things like that to find new music and listen to the radio and started digging the crates in rec- record stores and surfing through different web portals and web pages online. I discovered Princess Superstar, uh, and her album is. I believe that was her second or third album. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, You Get Mad at Napster was my favorite song off of that particular album. Is. and what I liked about it was that it was a dip song <laughs> I don't know exactly who she was dipping I still don't know who she was dipping. But the level of like that she thought she was great and she thought this person was shit filled with Internet references really resonated with me. Like I was I've always been a geek. I've always been online like since AOL. (laughs) And so everything that she was talking about, the the fact she crafted the whole song just around Internet disses circa like 2003 was, was just really, really hilarious to me. And Princess Superstar is a really underrated rapper. It was supposed to be her big crossover album and it just didn't happen. Like the the label kind of presented her as a female Eminem. She did like a few small things on MTV, but it, she just, it just never happened for her for whatever reason. She didn't blow up in that kind of way. And she kind of got like obscured by other female rappers who are kind of in the indie genre. So like you have like Peaches and people like that. They ended up getting more notoriety than she did. But in a lot of respects, like, Princess Superstars like Flo is really, really incredible. You know, her wordplay is intricate. She's funny as hell. A lot of her songs are really, really witty and snarky, along with like this kind of swagness attitude. And they're also really overtly sexual, but again, it's sexual in the same way like Will Kim was sexual, but like flipped up in a different kind of style. I swam super. You play on your
0: computer. Of a hair without in your underwear. Looks like Mr. And I make you start yeah, start
1: There's so many, like, really good, funny one-liners in it. Like, with her, you get mad at Napster when nobody even heard of you. You know, she did a search on you, and your, only one search came up. It was you, it was your computer, you're lame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, she made fun of, like, their AOL screen name. Like, it was the. This... It was a diss for the internet ages. I wish the album had been more popular so people could have heard that one particular song.
0: You get mad at Napster when nobody's even heard of you. I did a search in your name and came up with one result. It was your computer. you were a loser. Blame your screen name, pseudo-hip-hop, sound-a-lingo, mixed up lowercase capital letters. What do you think? This is bingo? I got singles out already. People know my name in discerning circles from New York to LA while you and Colonel Jerkpace burned under the curtains in a big chair singing hip-hop array.
1: I don't think I've heard any others. It's just been just about like some of these zeitgeisty things about the internet. Like she even made fun of like the way people like would write in their screen names. I don't know if there's anyone's gone that deep down the nerd oh well actually I take that back. You just made me think of something I was about to say I'd go down the nerd hole. I was really into nerdcore hip hop around the same time that I found Princess Superstar. So I was listening to a lot of MC Frontalot and MC Stephen Hawking and MC Chris. I don't know why they all named themselves MC. The <laughs> And I loved all, I, I love all those guys immensely. And so their music was very internet heavy. So I take that back. The, the rise of Nerdcore was yeah, pretty it. huge. It's <laughs> no, Nerdcore is it's awesome. MC Frontalot sent me, a before he like decided he needed to care about licensing the music, back when he just I would steal samples. I, so I have like the old like CDs that I he used to print that he would send to fans. like. he'd send them like $5 or whatever. And he'd send you the CD ROM of like all the original track, like I you still have
0: that, that somewhere on, on my computer. <laughs> if you drop a egg, you will not get an egg that's new. That's entropy or ENTRO over the E to the Y. The reason why the sun will one day all burn up and die. Order
1: from disorder is a scientific rarity. Allow me to explain it with a little bit more clarity. Did I say rarity? I meant impossibility. At least in a closed system, there will always be more entropy. That's entropy, and I hope that you're all done with it. If you are, here's your membership. You're done with entropy. Oh, definitely. Like I had so many little issues as a kid. Like I had all these phobias. I was afraid of bugs. I was afraid of the dark. You know, I was afraid of loud noises. I was afraid of like the animatronic bears at Showbiz Pizza. You know, like everything like kind of freaked me out as a kid, and it was endlessly frustrating to my parents. They just didn't know what to do with me. Like they would make sure the house was immaculate, didn't have a bug in it. You know, they would try not to like startle me, but it was just, some things just would set me off. and I would get really, really upset. I also had anxiety a lot as a kid. I didn't know what it was. I just knew I had like a stomach ache all the time. Like whenever I was in school and people were picky on me, like I would internalize it and it would turn to a stomach ache and I just wouldn't feel good. And that was most of my elementary school, junior high, and a good portion of my high school was me dealing with that pit of the stomach sickness kind of anxiety that eventually just turned into regular anxiety once I became an adult. My family, they went through different stages with it. Like my mom was relieved because she knew something was wrong. My dad, it took him a little bit longer. It took him a little bit longer to be accepting of it because he just didn't know what to make of it at first. He was worried about the medication that I was taking. He was worried about, like, how I would cope with things. And he had his own ideas and theories about how he thought I should have dealt with my illness. But, you know, as I've gotten older and the more that he's seen of it and the more that, you know, we've talked about it, he kind of accepts it the way that it is. And he's actually become much more helpful about it now. He actually, now that he better understands it, has better advice. I got my first crappy town job in 2000 when I moved to Midland, Texas, worked there for about a year and a half, then took the job in Bakersfield, worked in Bakersfield for five years, left Bakersfield, went back home to St. Louis for a little while to kind of recuperate, started the blog, The Black Snob, blog took off, decided to move to D.C., and I've been in D.C. pretty much off and on ever since. I lived in New York briefly, which was like a traumatic experience. (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> D.C. is where I've been. Oh, music was really, really helpful. It really helped me process my feelings. Like I listened to a lot, a really large variety of music. So I listened to Rilo Kylie. I was really into No Doubt. I listened to a lot of Fiona Apple. I listened to a lot of Fiona Apple. A lot of depressing music because I was depressed like I think out of all the No Doubt albums the one I listened to the most was their second album which was the depressing one like all their albums were really happy and upbeat they got this one album in the middle that's all about Gwen Stefani being really upset because she and Tony Canal are never going to be together anymore and the whole album is like a divorce that was like my divorce album whenever I want to like revisit that time in my life I can just throw on Return of Saturn and just have a good cry Just just let it all
0: out.
1: Oh, I was always into lots of different types of music. I would probably argue that as a kid, I was into R&B more than hip-hop. My youngest sister was a hip-hop head. We used to swap tapes all the time. Like, she would borrow my Mary J. Blige, and I would listen to her Bone Thugs and Harmony. But I would never actually spend my money on Bone Thugs. That was her thing. And she would never spend money on Mary J. Blige. That was me. And so, like, when I was in Bakersfield, I still listened to hip-hop, but not as much. The 90s, for me, was the best era of hip-hop. And after the 90s, hip-hop got really depressing sounding for me. I think that's why I gravitated towards Princess Superstar and nerdcore and rappers like that, because they still sounded a bit like 90s hip-hop, even though they weren't rapping about the same thing. pretty much everyone knows. I write about it quite a bit. It's just a part of who I am. I was originally, initially, uh, I was outed online as being mentally ill back when I worked in Bakersfield. And it was really traumatic for me, but that happened because I wasn't prepared to talk to people about it. The guy put it up on a blog and I was really upset and disappointed that this guy tried to make my illness about him and the fact that he shared it with people when I wasn't really ready to share it with anybody. Although some of that was my own fault. Like I had posted it on if this is another dated reference on my MySpace page <laughs> intending, you know, that only my friends would see it, and then of course, people who were not my friends ended up seeing it. And so I was devastated and for a long time, if anyone did a Google search on me, that was the first thing that came up was this guy's weird rant where he mentioned my illness. Part of the reason why I started my blog was about, I'm going to take control of my own identity online. I don't want this to be the way people define me or think about me. I'm fine with people knowing that I have bipolar disorder, but I'm not okay with this being the way they get introduced to it. I'd rather introduce people to me and my illness in my own way. And so I started writing quite a bit about being bipolar, along with just my regular writing about politics and popular culture and entertainment and things like that. And so for me... I felt like I had a responsibility to kind of write about what's it like to live with bipolar disorder. Because when I was extremely sick, when I was at my lowest point, I didn't see anyone living with the illness. I only saw other sick people. And so I thought, though, this is just it, this is how my whole life is going to be, I'm always going to be non-functional. I'm going to have to live with my parents forever, you know, I'm never going to be able to hold down a job or have a normal life, when the reality is, like, most people who have mental illness, you know, lead functional lives that they're just... In, essentially in the closet, they just not out, and it's not open with it. And so once I realized that, I was like, oh, I feel like I should leave part of my life out in the open about the fact that I'm bipolar, just to demonstrate to other people who are dealing with the illness, like, look, you may be in a really black place right now, a really dark place right now, but you don't always have to be there, and you, and you won't always be there if you work through it. If you just continue with your therapy, whether that's talk therapy, whether that's medication, whether it's both, is if you just keep at it, you keep working on it. If you can find stability and normalcy, you can learn coping skills to help better manage your life. Because that's what I did, and that's what countless others do who live with this illness and are functional. Definitely, I still do. I still like keep a journal of my thoughts. I still sometimes work on my novels that I have not finished. It's much harder to finish a novel now than it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I'd read a novel in a month. That's because I didn't know what I was doing. So it was fun. You know, now that I have like a job and responsibilities, you know, finishing a novel is a much more Herculean task. But I'd love to finish one someday. That's kind of, that's one of my life goals is to have a novel published. When I was going through the mania and the depression, like I poured everything into my writing. The point where i really developed the style that i have now today and it was like i put myself through my own like writer's boot camp like i wrote all these screenplays even though i didn't know how to write a screenplay like I, s- <laughs> I just wrote it anyway i wrote all these songs i was briefly in a jazz band i used to perform them in the band I wrote tons of poetry, wrote just tons of short stories, and worked on several novels that I still have not yet to finish. Like, it's nearly 300 pages long. I don't know how that thing's not finished if it's 300 pages. Yet it is. And I was actually just reading it the other day, thinking, like, you yeah, this isn't have bad. Like, you know, better edit this down and like get started on this again. I would say that my writing's become a lot freer. It was getting that way when I was working in Bakersfield because my editors gave me so much leeway. But it definitely got a lot freer, like once I started writing for the internet, writing for myself, and then eventually writing for other publications like The Root. Like I always knew that I had a writing style that I felt like people would like if they read it and, you know, that they would gravitate to it and would like it. And so it's been really powerful to see people be touched by my writing and have it resonate with them and have something that I worked so hard on to create, you know, mean so much to them as well. I would say that I get to be my fully creative self. Like if I tell my editor that I have an idea, like she's really welcoming, she's really open to it, and she wants to see me continue to kind of like grow in my potential
0: but I know God put me in a
1: water part of the reason why I wanted to put myself out there my writing out there was because I wanted people to be able to see that there are people like them who were doing things like this that they would see themselves in my writing when they would read my writing that they would recognize their own viewpoints and their own ideas and see it kind of reflected back. The main feedback that I give people who like my writing is like, you said exactly what I was thinking, I just didn't know how to put it into words. And they're usually really, really drawn to the fact that it's it's like most of my strongest supporters and fans are other black women. And they've always given me this wonderful feedback from everything about the writing to when I'm on television to whatever crazy job I've decided to take this week and remake my life all over again They've been really supportive because to a certain extent they see a little bit of themselves in it and it's the sort of feeling where it's like if one of us win we all kind of win a little i mean that's where the whole thing with nina cherry kind of came from like seeing her like i won just a little by seeing her win and it was the same with Lil' kim by like seeing her win i won a little as well and that's that's deep for a lot of people he's deep for me definitely Well, what's cool is that my dream as a child was to be a writer. You know, I always wanted to do this, and now I'm actually physically doing it. I'm living the life of a writer that I always wanted. Living in the big city, being friends with other writers, supporting other friends who are writers and their books and their, you know, their uh, journalism pieces and their excursions. I had this idea for myself that I would have like all these wacky adventures and meet all these fascinating people, and it actually came true. I have friends who are college professors, and I have friends who are artists, and I have friends who work in public relations and for nonprofits, and who are activists. And just that's always really, really just what I wanted. I wanted to be in this milieu, this is this wonderful like just array of creative people and feed off of all that creative energy and have, like, this very kind of witty, urbane lifestyle. It actually ended up happening. And so I often don't think about it in that way that I'm talking about right now because I tend to be a kind of a, a moody, dour person, which I don't, which you probably can't tell from talking to me, but that's my normal mode is to be a big sourpuss. <laughs> I mean, I can be really, really moody. It's <laughs> the, the side effect of the whole bipolar thing. Often I'm so busy thinking about, like, oh, I need to get this work done or, oh, I need to pay these bills, but I'm not actually enjoying the fact that I am living the life that 10-year-old me always wanted for myself. And that's deep. I don't think about that very often. and And I really should. I really should sometimes take a step back and actually enjoy the fact that I am living the life that I always wanted. Hip-hop matters because it speaks to who we are as a people, who we are as good, who we are as bad, who we are as indifferent. There's a style of hip-hop for every type of person, for every walk of life, for every journey that you have. Even if you think that, oh, there's nothing in this for me, there's actually, you can find a rapper that will will represent where you are in life. Like the fact that I found Nerdcore... (laughs) at a time in my life where I felt exceptionally nerdy and exceptionally alone and felt like I couldn't relate to most rap music and here was some music that was about computers and the internet and just weird random stuff. I was like, okay, this is my life in Bakersfield. It's weird and random and I finally found a music that spoke to me on it. Like there is a hip-hop for everyone and I think that's important.